Matthew chapter 15, starting at verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children, and after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Megadon. Well, imagine it's Saturday, the 6th of May, 2023. It's coronation morning. And you wake up and your bunting's flying and the coronation pudding's in the fridge. And you settle down in front of the TV. And there, as expected on the screen, is King Charles III on the throne. But then as the camera begins to pan out, you notice... That's not Westminster Abbey. And instead of Union Jacks flying, there's another flag blowing in the wind. And there's no Penny Mordaunt holding a sword, and Rishi Sunak's not there. And then as the king leaves the building, you get a massive shock. It's not in London. It's Lisbon, or Lima, or Luxembourg. And we're thinking, what is going on? The king is in the wrong place. And in our verses this morning, that's the kind of scene we have. We see Jesus categorically God's king. We see Jesus confirming his kingdom. We see the son of God gathering his church. But he's not where we expected him to be. And the question is, why? Why is Jesus here? Why is Jesus on the move? Now, before we dive into our verses this morning, it will help us just to make sense of what's happening, to briefly refresh our memories of the last few weeks in Matthew 14 and 15. Because in these chapters, Matthew's aim is to strengthen our faith as disciples of Jesus by showing us what to expect as Jesus gathers his church in a hostile world. And his method is to show us, well, to show us the ugliness of the world as, as an alternative authority so that we would recoil at it. And then to straightaway show us the goodness of Jesus so that we might come to him. And so we saw Herod and the ugliness of unbelief and his hostility to the truth. And then we saw Jesus, the compassionate king who cares for his kingdom. 
bringing God's promise of salvation. And now in chapter 15, we've seen the hypocrisy of man-made religion, which refuses God's word and breaks out in hostility against Jesus' disciples. And we saw Jesus expose this as vain worship. Just flick back one page, page 989, and towards the bottom. This is how Jesus put it from chapter 15, verse 6. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Here Jesus quoted words from Isaiah, which were spoken to Jerusalem 700 years earlier, and then applies them to the Judaism of first century Jerusalem. And then he went on to deliver a sobering warning from verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. See, when Jesus said that, he was specifically talking about the religious establishment right in front of him, which despite its great ceremonies and wonderful rituals, had silenced the word of God. But do you notice he says it in general terms? Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. As if to say, well, they're an example of a general problem, a general pattern, which is when religious establishments turn from God's truth, their end is clear and they'll be eventually rooted up. And so, if you like, in the context, we're left with this question, well, what will happen then? When religious establishments lose their way, what's the implication for the church and for the kingdom? And we'll see this morning that the kingdom keeps going and King Jesus keeps gathering and he breaks new ground, even in places that we'd least expect. And so we have two points this morning. The first is a stunning scene. Jesus will gather a glorious global kingdom. And the second is what we might call a loaf-filled lesson, because Jesus has compassion for all who come to him. So let's start with the stunning scene. And in chapter 15, verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. The there that Jesus went on from was the district of Tyre and Sidon, and that is Gentile country. To be a Gentile is to be a non-Jew. In Greek language, the word translating Gentiles often ethnos, from which, of course, we get the word ethnic, the nations. And in Gentile territory, we've just seen a remarkable moment. Jesus met a Canaanite woman, someone who the establishment of the day would have declared beyond God's mercy. And she knelt before him, and she received his saving grace. Verse 28, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And that moment was a massive shock. And it would have been a shock for the disciples, because Jew and Gentile was a great divide, and Jesus had crossed it. And perhaps it was just a one-off. 
Because through Israel's history, there'd been some Gentiles included from time to time. We might think of Jethro the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, and Rahab the Canaanite, Naaman the Assyrian, and in Matthew's gospel, a Roman centurion earlier on. Individuals here and there. And perhaps this woman's one of the same, another one-off. But then Jesus keeps on moving. Verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him. And in these scenes, where Jesus is really matters. If you like, location is key. But then oddly, Matthew seems to go a bit vague on place names. In Mark's account, he's more clear. He says, Jesus went to the Decapolis, a Gentile region. But Matthew just says, Jesus went on from there and walked by the Sea of Galilee. But I don't think this is Matthew being careless. The assumption is Jesus remains in Gentile territory. And we'll see shortly that Matthew confirms it emphatically. But in verse 29, he wants us to take note of a different aspect of Jesus' location. Just listen to verse 29 again. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. He went up on the mountain and sat down there. And it might seem like a minor detail, but this is a scene we're supposed to, if you like, stand back and stare at so that all the details soak in. In St. Andrew's over the road, one of the plaques on the wall tells us that Hans Holbein, the painter and artist to Henry VIII, was once a resident in the parish. And he famously painted the portrait, The Ambassadors, which is hanging in the National Gallery. And it's one of those paintings where there are all kind of items in it, a globe, a lute, all kinds of instruments, and they're carefully included and positioned to give the scene its meaning. Well, verses 29 through 31 are a bit like that. As we consider the scene, we find it loaded with significance. Jesus ascends the mountain. Then he sits down at the top of it. And then look at verse 30. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet. And you stand back and start to consider it, and a a royal echo begins to sound. The photographs are out of King Charles and uh, King Charles III in the state rooms in Buckingham Palace. And there's the one of the king and Prince William and Prince George, and they're together. And the king is seated on the throne, and it's raised up on steps. And perhaps you saw that moment in the coronation where the Prince of Wales knelt before the king to pay homage to him. And here Matthew shows us Jesus, high on a mountain, sitting, with all manner of people at his feet. And it's a picture of God's king, and people coming to pay homage And it's a scene that sort of Old Testament echoes. Because all through the Old Testament, God's kingdom is described as a mountain. He gathers his people at Mount Sinai. Psalm 2 says he installs his king on his holy hill. In the prophet Isaiah, the kingdom is pictured as a mountain with people coming, covered in people. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come. 
And so here is King Jesus, and he's confirming that the kingdom of heaven extends all across the world. And he's confirming that the scope of salvation reaches to all nations. Just flip back one page again to Matthew 14 and verse 34. It's there near the top right. So this is Jesus back in Israel. When they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And that word to made well, right at the end there, it's the word to save. It's the same word used by Peter in 1 Peter to describe Noah being saved from the flood. Because these healings, they identify Jesus as saviour. And then we see them again here on the mountain scene. Verse 31, they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And this list, well, it's the same list Isaiah gives to describe the day when the Lord comes to save. In Isaiah 35, he says, when the Lord comes to save, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. So on this mountain, it's a scene of salvation and it's reaching all the nations. And at the end of verse 31, they glorified the God of Israel. You see, Matthew doesn't need to say specifically we're in Gentile territory because the crowd say it for him. If they were in Israel, they would not have glorified the God of Israel. They'd have glorified God, full stop. But here we have the nations and they're praising God's king. This scene is like a signal to the nations, like a bugle call inviting the ends of the earth to come. This morning, as we gather, the majority of us here will be Gentile. We've come from all over the place. The nations, we really are in this room, people from the Americas, Australasia, Europe, Africa, Asia, from north, south, east and west. And this scene, well, it's a reason for us to glorify God. The Apostle Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Because here Jesus confirms, we may come. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And the crowds came and they glorified the God of Israel. It's a stunning scene. And in the context, it seems to be a pattern of the kingdom. It's a picture of what to expect as Jesus gathers his church, and particularly what to expect as Jesus gathers his church, where there are religious establishments turning their back on God's word. If you like, when the religious establishment loses its way, well, the kingdom of heaven continues to break new ground. I was trying to think of an image to illustrate it, and I thought thinking of water, water that just keeps on flowing, and you put obstructions in the way, and it finds new paths, and it makes new ways and finds new places to go. And I've been thinking about how we might see this pattern through history, through the history of the church. And in one sense, I'm a bit nervous to try and draw tight connections because Jesus' work is so great. 
Who am I to try and pin it down and join all the dots? But we do see this pattern, I think. Perhaps we see it in the blindness of the religious establishment of first century Jerusalem and then the church spreading from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Do we see it in the 16th century, man-made religion of the Holy Roman Empire and then the Reformation and new gathering, even in England? As in if thinking of this 18th century and the the, the Enlightenment establishment. And as that swayed and held power, there was revival among the masses as Whitfield and Wesley preached. Or maybe the 20th century atheistic communist states, creating gods out of leaders, where vast churches grew and outlasted the regimes. We've certainly seen it in the last week here, haven't we, as people from all kinds of backgrounds have come to these different events we've been running this week, and they've heard of the Lord Jesus. Because even when establishments err, Jesus keeps gathering his church. And I think in the 21st century, so-called post-Christian Britain, and with the leadership of the Church of England losing its way, it's just a great help for us to see this. Because it is sad when we see long-standing establishments losing their way. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will lament over Jerusalem. He'll say, how often I'd have gathered your children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. It's right to keep praying for God's mercy, to keep calling for repentance, to contend for the truth. But at the same time, to ensure that this scene on the mountain is what sets our agenda. That this scene on the mountain shapes our priorities and our prayers and our projects and our planning. Because this keeps people the priority. And it widens our horizons of the kingdom to go far and wide. It encourages us to keep taking the gospel to places and people we might least imagine. So where religious establishments lose their way, we're to keep our focus. Because Jesus keeps gathering his church. It's a stunning scene. Jesus will gather his glorious global kingdom. And then having shown us this scene, well, Matthew assures us that Jesus really will extend mercy to anyone who comes. And that's our second point. A loaf-filled lesson. Jesus' compassion for all who come. So one of the questions I've been thinking about through the weeks is why does Matthew spend good time recording a second feeding miracle which I think if you do the maths is 20% less impressive than the one he's just already done. I mean, why is it here? My children are at the age where they are enjoying doing spot the different puzzles. I think Matthew wants us to play a game of spot the difference. Because the similarities and differences between the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, well, they're going to help us see its importance. And so let's start with some of the obvious differences. There are 4,000 men, not 5,000. There are seven loaves, not five. There are seven baskets, not 12. And in preparation, I came across lots of discussion as to the significance of these different numbers. And maybe 12 baskets has an echo of 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, that feeding took place in Israelite territory. And perhaps seven baskets, well, that has a sense of completeness, maybe a non-Jewish feel. And maybe it is that. But the more I thought, 
I just wonder if the key thing is not so much the difference in numbers, but the similarity in scale. Because whether it's 4,000 or 5,000 men, it's a vast crowd. And then when you see both times Matthew says that's besides women and children, we're talking upwards of 10, 15, 20,000 in both scenes. And whether it's seven baskets or 12, it's still an abundant meal with huge amounts left over. And in fact, Matthew uses the exact same phrase, word for word, in both cases to say, and they all ate and were satisfied. And as one writer maybe cheekily suggests, well, perhaps the baskets at the feeding of the 4,000 were a bit bigger. (laughs) Because the point really is that this is a full-scale rerun of the same feeding miracle that Jesus has just done in Israel. But here he does it with the nations. If you were here when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, you'll remember how it was full of Exodus connections Because as Jesus feeds the crowd, he confirms his identity as the same Lord God who rescued his people from slavery, brought them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and would bless them in the promised land. He showed himself to be the Lord who provided bread from heaven to sustain them on the way. He demonstrated he was the Son of God who's come to accomplish the greater rescue that the Exodus points to, salvation from sin and judgment to enjoy forgiveness and new life as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom confirmed with this foretaste of the great future victory banquet for all who turn to Jesus to enjoy. And he does it again for the Gentiles. A full rerun. If you like, Jesus doesn't just scatter crumbs for the nations. He invites them to the banquet. Verse 35, and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. But there is one other key difference in this miracle as well, and it's the dialogue with the disciples. Because through this section, Jesus is teaching his disciples and the conversation he has with them in, chapter, in this chapter is notably different from the conversation he had in chapter 14. So back in chapter 14 at the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples are really proactive. They're on the front foot. They're taking the initiative. If you flick back to 14 verse 15, we see this. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. The disciples came to Jesus. They suggested that the crowds get fed. In chapter 15, they say nothing. It's as if even though they've seen Jesus receive and heal crowds on the mountain, they still can't quite grasp what's happening. The writer Don Carson puts it like this. Though they might have been prepared for Jesus to perform miracles and exorcisms on Gentiles as expressions of his mercy and compassion, they might still have been a long way from admitting that the Gentiles would share in the anticipation of the messianic banquet. But Jesus wants to teach them, and so he takes the initiative. He calls them to teach them a loaf-filled lesson. Verse 32, Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, 
I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and I have nothing, and have nothing to eat and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Chapter 19 and chapter 14, Jesus has compassion on the lost sheep of Israel. And here he has compassion on lost sheep from flocks from all over the world. And the phrase, I have compassion, could be translated, my heart goes out to them. Because Jesus longs to extend mercy to the nations. And so again, we see the disciples with bread in their hands. And they're not just scattering crumbs. But they're serving at the banquet as they learn Jesus' mercy really does extend to all peoples. It might be that you're here this morning and you've not yet come to Jesus. And the question here is, will you? Perhaps there are some here this morning who, like Charles described earlier, are burdened with that weight of sin or guilt or shame. And the concern is, though, will Jesus receive me? When I worked at BT, I had a colleague who used to say he could never set foot in a church building because he was sure that if he did, he would spontaneously combust and go up in flames. As it happened, he did actually come along to a lunchtime talk with me at St. Bodov's Aldersgate over that end of the city, and there was no need for the fire extinguisher. But perhaps we're thinking like that. How can I come to Jesus? How can I come to Jesus with my past, from my country, from my street? with my accent, from my faith background, with my colored skin, with my struggles, with my story. Look again at King Jesus on this mountain, because the point is you're coming to him. He says, I have compassion on the crowd. We read of this great invitation earlier in Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We can be confident to come to Jesus. And we can be confident to come, even when coming to him means we may face the hostility of the religious establishment. At the start of chapter 15, Jesus' disciples are accused of being defiled because they broke these man-made traditions that the religious authorities have created. Well, what if to come to Jesus incurs accusations of defilement? What if to follow Jesus might mean to be considered an infidel? What if, like Charles, to turn to Jesus means hostility from a school leadership? What if it brings with it oppression from governments? The ugliness of unbelief, well, it's on display, isn't it, in the reality of hostility to God's people. And it may be very costly to come to Jesus. And there may be significant suffering. But we can be confident of his care. Three times in, this, uh, in these scenes, Jesus shows his, com- his compassion and care for the people that the establishment called defiled. The Canaanite woman, the crowds being healed, the crowds being fed. Because he is king over the world. And he has compassion on all who come. 
and he'll gather his church and the gates of hell won't prevail. And one day all his people will recline at the victory banquet he's prepared. We can have confidence to come. And these verses, I think, compel us to call. We come back to where we begin. Why does Jesus move on? Well, because that's what it looks like as he gathers his church. When the establishment loses its way, the kingdom breaks new ground. I've been preparing, I've been thinking to myself, well, what would it look like for me to take hold of this lesson, to learn the low-filled lesson that the disciples have been learning? What might it look like for us as a church together? It would be a great thing to be discussing this morning. Well, surely at the very least, it's to keep looking up, to keep looking out, to keep this focus. Not to retreat, but to invest our energies and prayers for the kingdom to break new ground. And ever more so, where religious establishments are looking more like blind guides. Personally, one very specific thing I've been challenged to do was finish a book that I started and I didn't complete. It's written by our very own Rob Scott, sharing the gospel with a Muslim neighbor. I'm halfway through. It would be great for me to finish it so that I am more equipped for my neighbors. It'd be great, wouldn't it, to be praying that this scene would stick in our mind and shape the way we see people. Because it shows us that the people on our street or in our block or in the office or in the shop floor or at the school or anywhere we go, whether those who the kingdom of heaven is open for and who Jesus holds out mercy to, should they be willing to come. We're compelled to call widely. We can call confidently because Jesus is gathering his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you glory that in your mercy the kingdom of heaven is open to anyone who comes, Jew or Gentile, from all nations, whoever we are and whatever our background. We thank you that the Lord Jesus will gather his church from the ends of the earth and that he longs to extend mercy to any who come. And so, Father, we ask that we would have this mountainside scene etched in our minds that we would learn this lesson you taught your first disciples and that it would shape our agenda, that we might be a church who long to see people know Jesus' compassion and to glorify you forever in the kingdom of heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.